0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. Man, it is so good to see you guys this morning. We had an interesting conversation. We had a a staff gathering over at our house Friday night, and uh, we were talking about our 21st birthdays. And uh, some of us have some really lively memories from our 21st birthday. Some of us don't have any memories from our 21st birthday. (laughs) How many of you remember turning 21? And the rest of you, we're still praying for you. (laughs) It's so good to see you guys this morning today. My name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here at Discover Church. I wanna get started today by asking you a quick question. How many of you have uh, family heirlooms? Family heirlooms, you know, the thing that kind of gets passed down from one generation to the next? It's kind of a thing that's kind of become a little bit of a lost art. Um, It's not something that... Uh, it seems like a lot of families have heirlooms. I don't, I don't have any heirlooms that have been passed down to me um, in large part because I just, everybody in my family lives to like 95. I mean, I, I've had, I did the math this week and I have not just known of, but had actual relationships and memories with 12 different grandparents, three different great-great-grandparents, And so needless to say, we haven't had enough folks kick the bucket yet for me to get any heirlooms. (laughs) But here's the thing. Here's what's interesting about heirlooms. Heirlooms are are interesting because it speaks to, it kind of speaks a little bit to the person or the people that own the heirloom, that had the thing originally. Um, You have to excuse me. Man, I was doing just fine until I got up here and I got a frog in my throat. Anyway, um, but heirlooms speak a little bit to the person, the people that, that they had, but, but it, but it also speaks a little bit to their legacy. I mean, typically speaking, when an heirloom gets passed down, a lot of times it's done. Thanks, Ryan. Ryan, thank you, man. You got my back, brother. Thank you. Would you give it up for Ryan? Ryan, Ryan's saving the day today. I actually have like a bucket of water back there. I didn't think I was going to need it. Anyway, so heirlooms are, um, they, they they're, They don't necessarily define the person, but they speak to the person, they speak to their legacy. And so when an heirloom gets passed down, a lot of times it gets passed down as, hey, this is a part of who we are as a family. This is the legacy that we as a family are about. Today, what I want to do is I want to read to you about um, a, a family legacy of faith. We're going to read today in Hebrews chapter 11 about a, a family of four generations where faith was passed down from one generation to the next. And this, this collection, this these, these groups of men that we're going to read about are oftentimes referred to by, by scholars and theologians as the patriarchs. All right. These are these are the men that um, are are at the 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 epicenter, at the beginning, at the origin of the, the the Jewish faith, the Judeo Christian faith, and really, without them, there wouldn't be a a Christian faith as we know it. And so significant are these men that on 12 different accounts throughout scripture, um, when, when scripture addresses or speaks about God, what, it, what scripture will do is it will refer to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And the reason why scripture does this is because it was a time when a lot of people worshiped a lot of different gods. And so anytime the Bible says that, what it's doing is identifying to the original audience that this would have been written to, which of the many gods that people would have known. And it's defining the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, that goes on to refer to himself as the one true and living God. And so we are going to lean into this today. Now listen, if you are a parent or a grandparent today, you're going to want to lean in because we're going to talk about um how do we pass down a legacy of faith? And if you're not a parent or a grandparent, I don't want you to lean away because there are people in your life that I know that you love and you care about that I'm certain that you wish that that, that you could pass down your legacy of faith in Christ to them. So don't lean away if you're not a parent or a grandparent because there's going to be some principles that are going to apply to you as well. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there and before we- we do, I want to do a little bit of a recap of what we've been talking about. We are in the second half of our summer series called By Faith. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to teach you how you can approach the many different obstacles and opportunities in life that you're going to face, but approach them from a way that you can you can bless God, you can please God, that God would be pleased with you, um, but will also bring hope to whatever situation that you're in. And we've defined faith like this. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you've heard us talk about this, I want you to say it with me. We'll put it up on the screen. What is faith? Say it out loud. Faith is believing something is so when it isn't so because God That's right, that's what faith is. Faith sometimes doesn't make sense, but you're believing what God says when what you see doesn't match what God says because you're believing that what God has said is more important and stronger than what it is that you see. And so we're going to dive into this today. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to be. If you're with me, let me hear you say, by faith. faith. Hebrews 11, it says this. By faith, Abraham, there he is again. We've read about him several times. When he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he has also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac, here's generation number two, blessed Jacob and Esau, those are Isaac's sons, concerning things to come. Here's generation number three. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each one of his sons, each one of the sons of Joseph, and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. And then here's the fourth generation. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. What each of these generations is doing is they're talking about things to come talking about the promises that God would have made and and they begin to at some point be given some wisdom and direction of things that were going to happen and so one generation passes it down to the next to the next to the next not only about the things that are to come and and when it talks about the things that come is specifically we're talking about some of the hardship that the nation of Israel is going to face when they would be uh, 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 slaves in the land of Egypt for over 400 years and a promise that God had made many many years ago to Abraham that they would give them a land, that he would bless them and make them a great nation. Every single one of these men would die without ever seeing any of these promises come to fruition. In fact, it would be almost a thousand years after Abraham dies that his people would begin to see and know and experiences the promises that God would make. And God would bring those promises to fruition to a man named Moses that you're going to learn about in a couple of weeks. Each one of these men would offer some insight towards the end of their life to the next generation. Why is this important? It's important because we need to understand that, that the things that God spoke to one man, Abraham, got passed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, not just because it sounded good, not just because it was a blind faith, not just because it was, a, it was an ignorant hope, but because there was a true belief in who this God was. There was a true belief in the things that God had done and there was a true understanding of the miraculous, wonder-working power of this God. And so faith of this God began to get passed down from one generation to the next. And how exactly did they pass along this legacy of faith? Well, one of the things that I hear consistently, it's something that's a prayer in my home, is that if you are a parent, if you are a parent who uh, loves and follows Jesus, then one of your great hopes is that your children and someday your grandchildren will also know and follow and trust Jesus. And so, so what we're going to see today is we're going to see a little inside glimpse of, of the OG, Abraham, and how he began to pass down this faith that, that continued to get passed down for generations to come. And I believe the secret and how all of this happened, how this legacy of faith was created, the faith began with Abraham and Sarah, it became into fruition with the birth of Isaac. We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks, but it became a legacy in the way that they passed the faith down. And I want us to see how this happens today. And I believe that, that the clue that we find is in verses 17 and 18 of this chapter in Hebrews, when it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Now listen, considering the whole of the story, and if you've been with us the last two weeks, we have spent the last two weeks talking about Abraham and his wife Sarah and this miraculous thing that God did that allowed his wife Sarah, even though that she was well past the age of menstruating, to be able to get pregnant, to conceive, to have a child, and to nurse the child on her own at 90 years old and Abraham at 100 years old. Now listen, I don't care who you are, it's okay if we admit that's a little old. Okay, okay. Considering the whole of this entire story of what we've talked about these last two weeks, what we're going to read today is going to seem crazy. In fact, at some point, you're probably going to think to yourself, what kind of God is this? If you're new with us today and you're not sure about Christianity, if you're not sure about Jesus, I just want to tell you, I'm so glad that you're here today. Or perhaps if you're tuning in online, I'm glad that you've taken some time to tune in and spend some time with us. But I'm just going to tell you, what we're going to talk about today on the surface is a head scratcher. It's going to make some of us feel really, really awkward. But I believe what we're going to discover is we're going to discover an incredible God who has incredible promises to anyone who would love him and trust him enough to do what he says. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 22. You can go ahead and turn there. That's where this account is going to happen. And as you turn there, I want you to think about, specifically, fellas, uh, if you're a dad, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to imagine yourself out in the yard or out in the shop, maybe doing some home projects. You're just minding your own business. You and the love of your life, your, your wife, uh, she's in, she's inside or outside, wherever she is, she's doing her thing, you're doing your thing. and And, and, and you know that your son, Isaac, your son is, he is the apple of your eye. You love him. At this point, your son is, is, is probably a young adult, maybe in his early 20s. And you're minding your own business. And God comes to you and says this Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. It says this. And then it says, Then he, that's God said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I don't know how Abraham would have responded to this. But I'm imagining myself outside working on my lawn lines because I'm proud of my lawn lines. I have that illness, okay? Uh, You can see my lawn lines from space. That's how, get on my level. But I'm working on my lawn lines and all of a sudden, God shows up and says, "Hey, man, um, here's the deal. I'm gonna need you to take Junior on a on a hiking trip tomorrow, and it's gonna take you a couple of days to get there. And once you get there, I want you to kill him and uh, and, and and like oven roast him for me." You said what? The thing that I think is most interesting, and if you've been with us for a while, you know sometimes I like to try to read between the lines, especially if the Bible doesn't actually tell us what happened, because the Bible doesn't tell us about what Abraham did the rest of that day. It certainly doesn't tell us about how the conversation went with Sarah that night. Imagine that pillow talk. You finish brushing your teeth. You slide into bed. You turn the lamp off. And your bride turns over and says, babe, you have a busy day tomorrow? Oh, you know, kind of, a little bit. What are you doing? Well, me and Junior are gonna go for a, for a hike. Oh, that's gonna be great. He's gonna love it. Uh, I'm not so sure how much he's gonna love it. Well, he loves going on hikes with you. He loves spending time with you. He's gonna love you. You're taking time out of your busy day. You're spending time. You're making memories. This is gonna be great. How long are you gonna be gone? Uh, I'm not sure, a few days, Probably. Yeah, I don't understand, babe. Why? Why would? Why would Junior not like this? Nah, I'm gonna kill him. You going You gonna do what? I'm gonna kill him over my dead body. Well, I wasn't told to kill you. I was just told to kill him. And then I. And then I. And then I'm gonna. You know. Roasting. I don't know how pillow talk goes in your house. But I'm gonna tell you right now, that pillow talk would not go over in my house. So what is that? I mean, if, if I'm there, I'm probably like, like I imagine like Abraham texting one of his buddies, like, hey, bro, I'm gonna be out for a couple of days. Can you come take care of my lawn lines for me? Where are you going? On a hike? Kill my son? <clears throat> like if I was there and if I was Abraham's friend, I'd be like, yo, hey, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah, hey, bro, we do you pray about this. I am convinced you did not hear that right. By the way, I have heard you talk nonstop over and over and over, like, to the point, like, every time we get together and there's a new person in the group, you keep telling the same story, bro, about the time that God came and showed up and told you you was going to have a kid, and your wife laughed about it, and then he was like, did she laugh? And Sarah was like, I didn't laugh, and he was like, oh, but you did laugh. We talked about that last week. Like I have heard that story so many times and I am so sick and tired of you telling me about how God's gonna bless you and God's gonna make you a great nation and that all the people who bless you, God's gonna bless and all the people who curse you, God's gonna curse. Like bro, the only reason why I keep hanging around for the story is just in case it's true. I wanna be one of the folks that get blessed. I ain't about to curse you, my man, but I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm pretty sure you got something twisted. I don't know what you put in your coffee. I don't know what you put in your pipe that you smoked this morning, but something is wrong with what you are saying to me right now, Abraham. We don't know what exactly happened. We don't know if any of those things happened. All we know is the next verse says this. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. Abraham says, okay, well, I guess I better wake up early in the morning. How do you have that conversation with your son? Hey son, come on, we're going for, we're going for a hike. Awesome, dad, where are we going? Uh, to a, a place that God's gonna show us. Okay, fun. Sounds like an adventure. What are we going to do there? I'll tell you when we get there. It, it's going to be a challenge. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be like a man making arrival challenge. Come on, son. You're going to go with me. Abraham just packs up and goes. He takes two of his servants. He takes his son, takes all the supplies, and they get to step in. And I want you to see this that, that, that here's At the surface, when we go back and we read this now, we, we, we begin to wonder like, what exactly is happening here? What kind of God is this? Now here's what you have to know. At this point, God had never, not once, asked anybody to make a human sacrifice for anything. In fact, with us having the the benefit of reading the rest of the story, we actually go and read through the book of Exodus, through the book of Joshua, through the book of Numbers, that we read that one of the reasons why God is so upset with the people who are living in the land that God promised to the Israelites, one of the reasons why he's so upset is because they offered human sacrifices, oftentimes infant sacrifices, where they would take babies alive and well and toss them into a fire to worship some false God that they were proclaiming that was their God and God was angry about this so when we go back and we read this like nothing about any of this makes any sense how is it possible that Abraham was going with this how is it possible that Abraham was willing to just do this thing that seems so barbaric so atrocious so so evil the only conclusion that I can come to is that up to this point here is one thing that Abraham knew Every time God told Abraham an impossible thing was going to happen, it happened. And every time Abraham doubted God, God confronted him. And every time Abraham trusted in God, God blessed him. And here's what Abraham knew. Abraham knew, verse one, which I skipped on purpose for this moment, chapter 22, verse one, when it says this, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Abraham was able to know in this moment, this is a test. What is it that God is testing Abraham of? This is one of the most significant tests that any person who follows Jesus will ever test, will ever be tested about. Where is your faith? Is your faith and your hope and your confidence in the gift or in the giver? Isaac was the promised son. He was the walking embodiment of the miraculous power of God, the direct fulfillment of an impossible thing that God told Abraham and Sarah that he was going to do. And Isaac now, some 20 something years old, they had been walking in the miracle of God's power, of God's provision. And now Abraham is wanting to test, or God is wanting to test Abraham and he's gonna ask Abraham, he's testing Abraham. Abraham, where is your trust? Where is your faith? then whom do you worship? Do you worship the gifts or do you worship the giver? And can I tell you something today? I believe that, that a lot of the things that are happening in our society right now, a lot of things that are happening economically right now, I believe are a part of the process that God is using to test the faith of some of his people. Because here's what I believe that God is asking us. The same thing that he was asking Abraham. What are you worshiping? What are you placing your hope and your trust and your confidence in? Is it in the gift? Is it in your financial security? Is it in your disposable income? Is it in your relationship, your job, your career? Is it in is it in the relationship with your kids? Is it in your home? Where is your hope? Your faith, your trust and your confidence? Is it in the gift or is it in the giver? And Abraham at some point decided my faith and confidence is in the giver. Now, we don't know about this when we read about this in Genesis 22. We actually don't learn about this until we get to Hebrews chapter 11. But here's what Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham had determined was going to happen. Genesis, or Hebrews 11:19 19 said this, concluding, Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him, that's Isaac up, even from the dead. So here's what Abraham had come to the conclusion of God has called me to do this thing that seems ridiculous and impossible. I don't like it, but every single time that I don't do what God says, He confronts me about it. Every single time I do do what God says, God blesses me. So here's what I'm going to do I know that God has promised me Isaac. I know that God has promised that Isaac and through Isaac, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I know that this is a fulfillment of God's promise, but I also know that my identity and my faith is not in Isaac, it's in God. so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the place that God told me. I'm going to do the thing that God told me to do. And I believe that God is going to bring my son back from the grave. Now that's ridiculous because that had never happened at no point. We read about some people coming back from the grave later in the Bible, but in Genesis 22, this had never happened. At this point, there was a long-standing tradition of what dead people do. They stay dead. certifiable. It's crazy. It's insane. Notice what Abraham does. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, these are his two servants that he said, come with him. He said, listen, y'all stay here with the donkey. The lad and I are going to go yonder and worship. See, now y'all, y'all hate on me sometimes for using hillbilly Arkansas talk, but yonder is in the Bible. Bless Blessions. That's you ends, another way of saying y'all, city folk. He said, the Latin are going to go yonder, we're going to worship, and then we're going to come back to you. Now I want to pause here and point out a couple things in the original language. In the original Hebrew language that this would have been recorded in, what it says is something that's a little bit different than the way that we read it. It, it, What would have been communicated by by Abraham would have been an incredible sense of uh, certainty, a determination. It it could be said that what Abraham, uh, translated in English, what Abraham meant was is me and the boy are determined to go, we are determined to worship, and we are determined to come back. There's a determination, there's a focus, there is a ferocity, there is a certainty about what's happening. The second thing I want you to notice is this, that when Abraham uses the word worship, this is a, uh, this is the first time that the word worship, the word in Hebrew that gets translated in English as worship, it's the first time used in the Bible. Now this is something that's really significant for us because there, 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 uh, when you're studying your Bible, there's a lot of principles of Bible study. One of the the foundational principles of Bible study is called the principle of first mention. And it goes something like this, that anytime the Bible mentions something the first time, it establishes the precedent of what it is to be interpreted as the rest of the time. And so what we see here is that Abraham uses the word worship. We're gonna go worship. And then in a second, we're gonna see what worship looks like. And what God does in this moment is he defines for the rest of the biblical narrative, when you see the word worship, I want you to picture this image. And when you and I think of the word worship, when we think of the concept of worship, what he wants us to think about is this image. Let's continue in the second half of verse seven. They climb to the top of Mount Moriah. They, build, they go through the process of building the altar. And then Isaac starts to wise up. Isaac ain't stupid. Isaac says, look, dad, I see the fire, which would have been on a torch. They would have carried it with them from home. And I see the wood. Because I'm carrying it. Quick question. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Because every time we've done this in the past, we've always sacrificed something. And usually it's a lamb. And did we forget it, old man? Like I know you're old, you're like 120 now. Did you not put that on the, on the shared list on our iPhones? Like, what's going on here? Abraham responds and says, oh, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So they went up together. Now, we don't know a lot about what happens next. We just know that, that at some point, they get to the top of the hill, they get to the top of the mountain, and they would have built the altar. In all probability, they would have gathered some stones together to build a circle for the fire to go in. And they would have built some stones to go over the fire because they would have offered an animal sacrifice over the fire as a burnt offering to God. And so they would have built the stones. They would set it up. They would have placed the wood just so and they would have lit the fire. And at some point, again, scripture doesn't tell us how this happened. At some point, it just kind of flashes forward a little bit and we see Isaac bound up and hogtied. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Abraham is about 120 years old. Isaac is about 20 years old. Now, I know that old man's strength is the thing, but I don't believe there's any chance in the world that this 120-year-old crippled old man Wrestled down Hulk Hogan style and hogtied his son against his will. Now, I can't prove this. This is, this is, that says Jern, not that says the Bible. Here's what I believe that happened. I believe that there is some, that some conversation that goes on that the Bible doesn't record for us. And what Isaac did was an incredible display of faith, not only in Abraham, his dad, but in his dad's God. I believe that Isaac at some point understood what was going on and he laid himself down and his dad tied him up. And what happens next is hard to understand. It's the moment of truth. The altar is built, the fire is going. Abraham is on the ground, or or Isaac is on the ground. He's tied up and he's bound. And Abraham gets down on a knee and he reaches into his cloak and he grabs his knife. What's going through Abraham's mind at this moment? This is my son, this is my only son. This is the miraculous son. This is the son that God promised me. This is the son that came even after my wife laughed about being pregnant. Abraham raises his hand above his head. What's going through Isaac's mind? This is my dad. How can my dad do this? incredible conflict, a crisis of faith. I love and trust my dad. I know my dad loves and trusts me, and I know that my dad loves and trusts his God, but this seems like a whole lot of faith right now in this moment, because all I'm seeing is the wild-eyed look of a man who's about to kill his son, and I'm realizing I'm getting ready to lose my life, and I can't run away. I can't get out of this. I have chosen this along with my dad as he has chosen this, and right as Abraham begins to bring the knife down into the flesh of his son, God intervenes in verse uh, verse 11, and he says, but the angel of the Lord called to him and he said from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. I don't think that's how that went down. Abraham's getting ready to drive the knife in and the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, oh dear Jesus, oh thank, oh. Woo, woo, Oh, that was close. My heart's pounding, this was crazy. Whoo!" <clears throat> yep, I'm here. And he, the angel said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Abraham, here's what I know now. I know that your son Isaac is not, is not an idol in your life. I know that the gift that came from me is not an idol that you are bowing your knee and worshiping and building your life around. I know now, Abraham, that you worship and serve me, the giver, and not the gift. I just feel led by the Spirit to just pause for a moment and just ask you the question. If God, is God convicting you right now of some idols in your life? Are there some things in your life that that if God were to come to you and say, listen, I need you to kill that thing. I need you to get rid of that thing. I need you to destroy and demolish and eradicate that thing from your life. Would you be willing to do it? Because here's the deal. Anything in our lives that rises to a level of importance, that rises to a level of worship, that rises to a level of of, of praise, that rises to a level of adoration, that rises to a level of infatuation over Jesus. It's an idol. And we may not think it's fair But God has said from the earliest pages of his word, I'm not in the habit or in the business, nor do I have interest in sharing glory with anything or anyone. And here's what is the unfortunate truth for us. God has the unique position of being able to offer the ultimate trump card because God can say, because none of them gave their lives for you like I did. That car didn't die for you like I did. Your career didn't die for you like I did. Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your grandparents, like they did not give their life for you like I did. The house, that mortgage payment, it's not sacrificing itself for you. You see, here's what happens with idols. God comes to us because he wants us to understand that that he, through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that God laid his life down for you so that you can live in abundance and in freedom. But here's how idols work. Idols demand that you lay your lives down for them so that you live in bondage and slavery. God says, I want to set you free from that. He's telling Abraham, Now I know you are not worshiping the gift, you are worshiping the giver, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And then Abraham and his son go back home. What is the principle of first mention of worship? It's sacrifice. What Abraham and Isaac paint for us as a principle of first mention in God's word is that worship cannot be done without sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac go home and have an incredible story to tell. Here's what I find that's interesting. As Abraham and Isaac are climbing up one side of Mount Moriah with their problems, Abraham is so consumed by what's going on, he doesn't even realize that the ram was already there. And so while they were walking up one side of a mountain with their problems, God was bringing the solution up the other side. And I just wonder for somebody today, how many of you are so obsessed, so concerned, so overwhelmed with your problem that you're not even aware that God is already bringing the solution? The ram doesn't just magically show up It was already there. But they were so wrapped up in what they were doing that they couldn't even see it. They couldn't even worship. They couldn't even acknowledge it. And in the verses that follow, what God does is he doubles down on his promises to Abraham, the promise to give him land, the promise to give him prestige, the promise to give him blessings. What do we take away from this? I believe two things. Number one, that worship is the key to a life Of faith. What is worship? It's sacrifice. Oftentimes, when we think of worship, we think of worship music. Oftentimes, when we think of worship, we think of what we do when we get together and we sing. Here's what I want you to understand when God thinks of worship, He thinks of sacrifice. Now, listen, worship. And music, that's, that's critically important. I believe that God is greatly glorified when His people gather together and worship Him. When we proclaim back to Him the truth of who He is, what He's done, what He's about, how good He is, how much we need Him, I believe God is greatly glorified by that. I believe that God is greatly glorified when we all come together once a week to sing that together. And I just got, I got really bad news for you. Like if you don't like that part of the church service, you're going to hate heaven. And for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that think it's a sin to play drums and play stringed instruments, they're gonna really hate heaven. I'm gonna tell you what: there's gonna be some drum solos like crazy in heaven and somebody's gonna be shredding it on a lead guitar in heaven. Worship is important. Music is important. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a difference between worship and praise. Did you know this? Worship, Worship is... We think of it as music, but God thinks of it much broader. Worship is something that extends beyond the, 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 the piano and the music and the melody. Worship extends to the way that we live our lives. Why? Because worship is sacrifice. Every time you make a decision of sacrifice in obedience to the Lord, that is worship. You can also worship when you come in into this place. Worship in, in a musical sense, when you study the word biblically, when it's tied to a musical sense, is always about the process of, of, of sending upward the praise uh, or sending upward the truth and, and declaring the need that you have for Jesus. You can worship on your own. You can worship in your car. You can worship in the shower. You can worship in a closet. You can worship in your mind without even having to sing out loud. You can worship anywhere, but praise is different. I can worship on my own, but I can't praise on my own. When you study the word praise throughout scripture, praise is where worship is vertical, praise is more horizontal. Praise is more of a reminder to somebody else about how good God is. Like hell lost another one and I am free. I I want you to know and I want you to know and I want you to know and I want you to know hell lost me and I am free. Amen, praise God all by myself and two other people. In the beginning days of our church, our hope and our desire was that we would have a worshiping church, that we would have a praising church. Have a church where, where, where people would long and look forward to come together and gather together, to do something together that, that we can do kind of on our own through worship, but we can't do on our own through praise. And I just gotta tell you, man, I love coming and worshiping with you. I mean, it blesses my heart. Like, I'm so glad that we have online and we can... We can funnel this stuff online. I'm glad you're watching online, but can I just tell you, can I get an amen from this? It's not the same as being in the room. I don't say that to guilt or shame anybody. Just say, come on, we got seats ready for you. And I tell you what, our church is so incredibly blessed by the people, the gifted people who love Jesus, who love this church, who lead us week in and week out through worship. Amen. You can clap for that. That's okay. One person awkwardly clapping. Whether it's the people that are up here leading us through worship or the people back in the production booth that are leading us in worship, man, I'm so incredibly grateful for, for the worship and the praise that we get to experience. About a year ago, Brian came to me with a burden on his heart about wanting to help our church grow in our culture and the way that we worship and we praise together. And and he just began to pour his heart out to me. He said, listen, man, I just, I want to see our church grow. I want to see our church um, understand the incredible blessing and the benefit of, of what it is to be able to worship and praise together. I want, I want people to take steps of faith in how they worship and praise. I want people to be able to experience the power of worshiping and praising together with others. I'm like, amen. Yep, me too. And he said, but here's the problem, man. Like, I feel like, like there's some things that we have set up right now that, that I think for, for, for some people, maybe even a lot of people that it, what, what it may seem like to them is that we show up and we, we present worship music to them for them to listen to and enjoy. And sometimes I wonder if, if because of the way that we set things up, if, if if it, if it kind of creates an environment like where like literally there's a stage and then there's a wall of space here and then there's all the rest of the people and they just kind of sit and stare and look at us while we're doing our thing. I mean, I know that there are some people that are worshiping and I realize that we can't make somebody worship. God doesn't want that. But, but it, I wonder if there's a way that we can do something to make some changes to how we do things so that we could actually create an environment where, where maybe it feels a little bit less like a presentation and it feels a little bit more like an invitation. Where it feels a little bit less like, like me and the team are up here just presenting these songs and singing these songs as best as we know how. And, and everybody there is just kind of standing and staring at us. And instead to be able to create some sort of an environment where, where we, we could create a, where, where it feels more like a participation where we're all kind of doing this together. And I'm like, that sounds great. I have no idea how to do that. And he goes, well, I, I, I want to share some vision with you. And Brian just began pouring his heart out about again, about a year ago. And he, and he shared this verse with me in Hebrews or Romans chapter 10. He says, man, this is the word, the verse that keeps coming back to me. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He said, here's the deal, man. Like, when we sing these songs, like, we, we are careful to choose songs. There's all kinds of songs in the worship atmosphere that, that sound really good, that make you want to clap your hands, and some people raise their hands, but sometimes they're not really even about Jesus or God or God's power or God's goodness. They're just, they're just stuff about us. He goes, so we're careful to pick songs that, that, that when, when it's, when it's time to praise, we praise, like looking across the room. Yeah, I am set free. I am free. I want you to know about it. But we're also careful to pick songs that, that glorify God, that sing praises directly. It's God's word put to music, sung back to Him. And that builds faith in people. But it's hard to build faith in people if everyone is just staring at us and doesn't get an opportunity to see how other people are experiencing and encountering this truth from God's Word. He says, So I want to make some change. I said, Brian, this is a church. Churches hate change. I said, But I'm all about it. Let's go. And so I just want to give you a heads up. In a couple of weeks, you're going to show up into this place, and this is going to this room is going to look very different, okay? And I'm just letting you know ahead of time because some people pro- they need some time to process it. That's okay. I want you to know that, that that you're probably going to come in. Some of you, you're going to see the room. It's going to look and feel different. You're going to be like a bunch of old cows staring at a new gate, and you're going to want to embrace that feeling, okay? And I'm not going to try to explain it to you because I would probably screw it up. Brian's on vacation this week, and he was like. You got it? I'm like, yep, got it. But Brian and our team have been working on this for well over a year and he's so excited. I'm so excited to be able to try something new. Is it okay if we try something new so that we can try to grow and take steps in our relationship with God? Is that okay? Now, here's what I know. I know this, that you can't get from where you are to where God wants you to be unless you're willing to let go of something. And so we're probably gonna have to let go of some things. And you're gonna to have to make some decisions about what it is you need to let go of, but I can promise you the heartbeat of our worship pastor, my heartbeat, is to be able to create an environment that allows you individually and allows us as a church to be able to have a more inventational, participatory environment in the worship of our God. And I think that's an awesome thing. Worship is key to the life of faith. That's why we're making the changes that we're making, because we want to try to create an environment that positions you to be able to take steps forward in your worship and in your praise of your God. Here's the second key that I think we need to take away from this message today. That worship is not only key to a life of faith, worship is key to leaving a legacy of faith. What is worship? It's not music. Worship isn't what you do in the hour or so that you're at church on Sunday morning. That's part of it. Worship is sacrifice. Worship is, is the sacrifice and sacrifice is the decision that says, God, anything that gets in my way from being closer to you, is, I'm sacrificing it. Anything that, that elevates itself above you, I'm gonna develop a posture, a heart attitude of sacrifice. I want you to understand, I want you to see how Abraham did this. Abraham did not pass on the faith just by telling an awesome story of this incredible promise about what happened before you were born, Isaac. No, Abraham took it a whole step further. And this is where the encouragement is for the parents and the grandparents in the room. Abraham didn't just tell his son about old stories of old times. Abraham invited his son into current stories in present times. And so listen, if you're a parent in the room today and your desire is for your kids to know and love Jesus, listen, can I tell you, don't just drag your kids to church and take them back to Discover Kids. I'm so grateful to Discover Kids My kids have learned and grown so much in their faith because of Discover Kids. But can I tell you something? Discover Kids and Emily and her team back there, they are not the spiritual authority in my kid's life. I am. It's my job to raise my kids to know and love Jesus. It's my job to create an environment in my home and the way that I live my life so they can know and love Jesus and see that it's not just something that we do at church on Sunday. This is an everyday thing. So moms and dads, don't just, don't just drag your kids to church and tell them to shut up and have fun and discover kids. Listen, yes, I do that with my kids some weeks. God bless them and Lord help me. But don't just take your kids to church. Show them how you worship. Show them how you pray. Show them how you spend time with Jesus. Show them what it looks like for you to make sacrifices of worship to him. And in times when it's appropriate, share with them about the the struggles of faith. There are times when I don't normally tell my kids all the details, but I'll just say, well, I, you know, i put my kids to bed most every night. Most every night I pray with them and, 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 and usually I'm the one praying for them. But every once in a while, particularly when I'm going through something hard, sometimes I just say, hey, sweetheart, hey, buddy, would you pray for daddy today? I could really use some prayers. What am I doing? I'm just, I'm just trying to show them that, 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 that I need God just as much as they do. I need grace just as much as they do. Listen, I'm not trying to elevate myself as the standard. I'm just giving examples of what some of this could look like. You do what looks like what works for you. If you're a grandparent in the room, listen, don't just preach at your kids that they need to go to church. Don't just look for ways to have them come spend the night at grandma and grandpa's house so you can drag them to church and then send them back home and try to like, you know, backdoor guilt trip them because they weren't in church. Instead, pray for your kids. And take it a step further and look for opportunity to say, you know what, here's something that God is teaching me. And don't allow it to be one of those things where you say, God's teaching me this and I wanna tell you because I believe God's teaching me this so that I can teach you. Sometimes it's okay to just say, you know what, God's teaching me some things. God's working on me some things. God has brought some conviction on me about some things. And I just want you to know about it. I just wanna remind you that I know that I'm not perfect. And if you're here today and you're not a parent, you're not a grandparent, if that's not in the cards for you, if that's not reality for you right now, these principles still apply because there are people in your life that I am certain that you love and care about that you wish would know and love and follow Jesus the way that you do. You see, here's, here's what I wanna get across to you today. That if you want to leave a legacy of faith, don't just tell people what you know. Invite people to be a part of your faith journey. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, I wanna invite you to take your first step in the faith journey. You know, one of the things I love so much about this story of Abraham and Isaac is how much of it foreshadows to Jesus. You see, it says that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. The Bible says in John 3, 16, that God loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that anyone who would believe in him would never perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the other little nugget that I think is so interesting. I didn't know this until this week. Historians and scholars say that Mount Moriah, where Abraham and Isaac climbed to the top and the whole scene took place, thousands of years later would, would become the place. It would become the hilltop that the city of Jerusalem would be built on the very place where Jesus would walk, the very place where Jesus would allow himself to be crucified on a cross, ushered into a grave, and the very place where he would tell a stone to roll away, emphatically saying, death, you no longer get the final say. You see, for some of us today, we've been reading a story about Abraham, but you didn't realize that you were reading a story about you. And how Jesus, as the loving, submissive son of God, laid down his life so that you and I could experience grace and forgiveness and freedom. How do we experience that? If you're here today and you're overwhelmed by life, if you're overwhelmed by grief or shame or, or, or the guilt of your past, how do you get from, from moving from the, from the shackles of all of that to the freedom that Jesus offers? The answer is by faith. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word faith to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.